You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Tabor, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. Let's start with a quick word on what this podcast is about. I am a doctor. I'm a veterinarian for crops, but that's a pretty recent development. I also started working in agriculture when I was 14 years old, starting out with detasseling corn, which was my first job ever, and have been working somewhere in the agriculture and food sector ever since. So that's my entire adult life and then some. Some of that time was in a very professional scientific capacity, and a lot of it was in a really dirty jobs kind of capacity. And not only that, but it's been all over the U.S. and then some. So the really cool thing about this history was getting a first-person look at the entire food system, from breeding new crop varieties before a farmer even has a seed to plant, to the farm part that we usually think of with agriculture, all the way down to after something's left the farm, and even local food has this really complex logistics and supply chain that's really interesting, at least to me. I began to realize there are several conversations happening around food and agriculture that just don't line up with what I'm seeing first-person. And the thing is, you hear that all the time, don't you? Uh, You hear people say, well, folks just don't get how it is out here really being on the farm. And they'll tell you how it really is on the farm. And what I've found is that not even that version of what agriculture is really like is truly accurate. Individual farmers know their own personal farm very well. They know their own personal work routine very well. But knowing an individual farm really well is kind of like owning a house. You do your own maintenance. You know where everything in your house is and what tends to leak. You know your neighbors, you know your mortgage. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a a great grasp on the pros and cons of different home construction techniques or housing markets in different income brackets or city to city, or even what housing policy changes might mean for you personally, never mind for your city or nationwide real estate investing trends. But when we're talking about agriculture and food systems, as much as we love the micro-level human stories, and really we do, We also need to step back a little bit and look at the big picture. That's something that we've had a hard time so far with in the food and farms discussion. There are a lot of folks talking about it that know their house. They are food writers or they're chefs or they're farmers and they know their own corner really well. And it's not that that micro level isn't important. That person to person level is where a lot of bigger things get built. That's where things happen and the rubber hits the road. And we'll be having a lot of interviews to bring those stories out into the open. But there's also this whole universe of stuff going on uh, behind the scenes uh, to create food and get it to people. There's this whole chain of events. And most of us in the food movement only know our own little link in the chain. So we think we're talking about the food system, but really we're just talking about the few parts in that system that we personally know. There's a whole big picture there that gets missed. And there are these small person-to-person stories, too, that we miss because we're, they're not happening in these kind of sexy parts of the food system that we're used to thinking about, like farmers and chefs. You'll only find these stories if you zoom out to include parts of the food chain that are a little bit less sexy. And if there's anything this podcast can really rock out on, it is the unglamorous and the unsexy. A big side effect of the piece-by-piece approach instead of looking at the big picture in food is that the food movement is really focused on techniques. We need to farm this way or that way. We need to use GMOs and pesticides or we need to not use GMOs and pesticides. But we don't talk about why the food system leans certain ways or towards certain techniques in any real substantive way. Other than maybe some vague hand-waving about step one, do this, step two, question mark, step three, profit. That's really about the level of things we talk about and the kind of detail. 
What I see when I work in agriculture is, yeah, nearly everything in this sector could be done better. So if there's a better way to do everything, why aren't those better ways getting used? Why aren't we talking about that? Who's really making these decisions and why? What kind of information are they working with? What kind of constraints are they working with? There's a whole human side to all these decisions that are getting made above and beyond the constraints that we're working with. And that's something that could use a little bit more, uh, a little bit more focus. In my experience, working with everything from small family farms to the big corporate guys to Silicon Valley food startups, every agriculture and food problem is fundamentally, it's a people problem. It's probably that way in every industry. I feel like anytime you talk to someone who's been in a certain line of work for five to 10 years, they always say, well, technically I work in X, but really I should have been a psychologist. Because every business problem and every industry problem is fundamentally a people problem. And agriculture and food are no different. A lot of our food system problems are fundamentally people problems. So you can't have an effective conversation around food and farming if you don't talk about the human and the cultural issues behind it. And I haven't really seen anyone talk about that in the depth that I would like to see it have. So a lot of this podcast is going to be the normal stuff that I guess you'd expect in an agriculture podcast. We're going to talk about crops and dirt and machines and science. And we're also going to talk about humans being humans in a world made of crops, dirt, machines, and science. So we'll just start off today with a couple of stories. These are stories from a couple of family farms, actually, one in Washington State and one in Florida. Both of these were doing some really cool stuff. They took a really common struggle in their area and made it work for them. One of the coolest things about working in ag has been meeting some really smart farmers and getting to learn from them. Now, I know I said earlier that we're going to focus on people, not techniques, and now we're getting right into some techniques, right? But there's a logic. I'm telling these stories now because there's some really interesting people stuff behind the techniques of what these two farms are doing. And we're building a foundation here and kind of getting exposed to what they were doing so that we can dig beyond that a little bit later and talk about that people stuff behind these issues and, and behind these techniques and, and these decisions later on. Our first story is a tale of cherries and birds in central Washington. Up in central and eastern Washington state, they grow a lot of cherries, and one of the biggest problems in cherries is fruit-eating birds are really drawn to red things, and cherries are a red thing. About a day before they finally get ripe, a flock of birds will descend and come through and, and eat them all. So birds are pretty lightweight, actually. Uh, even a big flock doesn't actually need that much to eat. But birds don't just grab a cherry and eat it. They sit down on a branch, they look around, and they take a peck out of whatever cherry is closest to them. And they say, that was amazing. And then they take a second peck out of a different cherry that is also very close to them. So you'd expect that maybe a flock of birds would just fly off with some of your cherries. But what really happens is a huge amount of fruit gets damaged by one single peck in it. Now, fruit that's been damaged begins to rot right away. And so it's an enormous crop loss. If we're talking sources of food waste, you know, the old 40% um, of whatever food is grown never makes it to a plate or whatever that statistic is. Uh, this is a huge cause of food waste. And it's a huge livelihood problem for the farmer. Fruit trees are incredibly high maintenance, so they've just poured all this money and energy into a crop only to have it be destroyed the day before it has a chance to get used. So back in the day, farmers would resort to some pretty extreme measures to move the birds away. We're talking shotguns, poison, all the good stuff. But the fact of the matter is, you don't need to kill those birds. You just need to persuade them to hang out somewhere else. 
So nowadays, we have this whole legion of bird-repelling devices out there. Fake owls, mylar balloons, strips, taped distress calls, boom cannons. And they're all very effective. For about two days. They're all really expensive just due to the crew hours that it takes to set them up. And boom cannons are also really effective at annoying the heck out of every neighbor in a three-mile radius. So farmers are always on the lookout for something more effective, a little longer lasting, and with fewer uh, complaint calls involved. One thing that should work really well is setting up nesting boxes for birds of prey. If you're a farmer, the theory is that you can set up some nest sites, some nice young raptor couples will move in and raise their kids, and the fear of getting eaten by live birds of prey doesn't really fade the way the fear of flashy balloons does. So the state of Washington had this big initiative to get orchard farmers to put in kestrel boxes in their orchards. The kestrels are a small bird of prey, the, the smallest member of the falcon family in North America. So they mostly eat big bugs and small birds like sparrows, finches, cedar waxwings, up to robins and starlings and other usual suspects for eating fruit. Now as a farmer, you probably also want other birds of prey in your area like owls and hawks, but they tend to go after prey on the ground like rodents. So as far as dealing with birds eating your cherries, you're looking for kestrels specifically. Only, when I was going around doing site visits with farmers, none of them were very happy with how the kestrel boxes worked. The farmers all felt they were back to square one and it was just another dumb waste of time government program. Until I got to one farm who said, they were working great, thanks for asking. My ears kind of perked up and I said, well, really, because that is not what everyone else is saying around here. So it turns out this farm was doing things very differently from their neighbors. Every orchard's got roads and lanes running through it, right? Uh, most farmers are putting their kestrel boxes right next to those on-farm roads and lanes. I mean, that's where you put most of your stuff on a farm. If you need to put in a well, irrigation equipment, storage sheds, obviously you put it by the road so you can get it. That's just where you put things. This farm said, you can't do that. This isn't like installing a machine. These birds are looking for a place to raise their family. They want something quiet. And the farm lanes, of course, are where all the traffic's going. It's loud, there's a lot of interruptions, it's dusty. Of course the birds aren't going to set up shop if you only give them options that are in the least family-friendly parts of the orchard. The other thing this farm says they found was that you have to make sure to clean out that nest box really early in the season, like early spring or late winter. So that's the time of year when farms are kind of shut down. The labor is seasonal and has all gone down to Florida to pick oranges. Uh, the farmer is either focusing on their town job and enjoying not having to run around the farm for a couple of months, or if they are doing farm stuff, it's normal off-season jobs like equipment maintenance and business details and winter pruning. Nobody's thinking, oh yes, it's February, time to climb a ladder in the freezing rain and scratch around in bird poop. But if you want the kestrels to work for you in July, you gotta clean out their house in February. Now, Orchardists are really familiar with the concept of doing work now for a payoff later, but kestrel box maintenance is a new thing that maybe just hasn't quite made it onto the calendar yet. And if you have more than a few of these boxes, you're looking at needing uh, help to make sure that they're all covered. Having that on-farm personnel in February is something you'll have to plan out way ahead of time. Again, because typically everyone who works in agriculture evacuates Washington and heads down to Florida where there's work. And you can't just have them there for a week or two in February. Uh, you need to have a full-time set of things for somebody to do all winter long, or they're not going to stay. So running kestrel boxes successfully is not simple at all. It starts to get into your entire guts of how you run your business. Are you lining up work in a normally seasonal business so that an employee can stay with you year-round? What are you going to do to help your employees be successful, or your one employee, so that they can help you be successful? It goes a lot deeper than just putting in some boxes. 
So that's the story about the birds and the cherries. It starts off about technique and it turns into people. Next up, this story takes us down to peanut country in northern Florida. North Florida is a funny place to grow crops. It's too cold for citrus and too hot for apples, so they're a little restricted on what they can grow. One big crop that does do well there is peanuts. And since I got trained on how to be a plant doctor at the University of Florida in northern Florida, we got to know the peanuts. Fun fact about peanuts, most of your row crops, like corn and soybeans and wheat, have a defined season where they grow, and then it ends, and it's made what it's going to make, and you harvest it. Peanuts are wibbly-wobbly. They just kind of keep blooming and sending pegs down into the ground and making peanuts down there until you decide to call it off and harvest it. So you got to figure out when to harvest. At what point are there enough peanuts on those plants to make it worth getting that combine out? It can actually get very complicated. Big peanuts fetch a higher price, so you want to know how many big peanuts you have versus small peanuts. And if you had a bumper crop of flowers last week, maybe it's worth it to wait until they finish developing. Or should we just harvest now? And my personal favorite, if you don't harvest, eventually the pegs rot, and the earliest peanuts will start coming loose from the plant and you can't harvest them anymore. So if you wait too long, uh, then you start to lose the peanuts you already got, and that's all happening underground where you can't see it. There's actually a lot of drama with farming peanuts, and it's stressful. So, if you want to be a plant veterinarian in northern Florida, you better learn how to do a peanut forecast. So it's peanut season, and we all go on a field trip to count some peanuts. The first farm we get to is striking, or as far as you can possibly be from the coast and still be in Florida. About two hours away in either direction, and this place has dirt that looks exactly like beach sand. It's just white. There's no organic material whatsoever. It's as if one day, thousands of years ago, the sandbar that is now Florida had emerged from the ocean, and at this place, nothing had changed since that day. Of course, this is none of my business, so we just get busy counting peanuts. You dig up a patch, count the full-grown peanuts, and the teenage peanuts, and the baby peanuts that are hanging off the roots. You do some math, and that's your yield forecast. And it doesn't take us long, because these plants have barely any peanuts on them. So I got bored, as you do and uh, started eavesdropping, as you do. And the farmer and the professor who's running the field trip are talking, just doing the small talk, which of course turns to how difficult farming is. This farmer's talking price per ton and how much it costs just to run the combine for an acre. And I'm doing the math in my head together with the yield forecast that we had just done, and it is not penciling out. This guy's not even going to break even, and he knows it. And he's feeling some kind of way about it, and it's tragic what's happening to family farms. And he's giving his own eulogy at this point. And it also pops out that he's been growing peanuts and peanuts and peanuts and nothing but peanuts on this land for 20 years in a row. There have been no rotations, there have been no efforts to improve the soil quality, and boy, farming sure is hard because you just can't control nature. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've seen his yields, and it sounds like this has been going on for a while. How is this guy hanging on? And then I remembered that peanuts are subsidized. So we move on. We go to a second peanut farm. Same story here. They've got the same beach sand soil, same let's grow peanuts for years on end strategy, and the same economic despair. At this point, I am contemplating human mortality. Rural areas are doomed. It's the sunset of America. How are we even going to feed ourselves in the future if farmers can't make it? And then we get to the third place. This isn't more than a few miles from the first two farms. Same county, 
same geology, same weather. But his dirt looks like chocolate cake, and we do his yield forecast, and it looks fantastic. This guy is going to pay his bills just with his harvest and his actual crop yields, and then some. And he's not depending on subsidy checks to make his ends meet and to stay in the farming business. So come to find out, this peanut farm is actually run by, in this case, three brothers. One of them grows bahia grass, it's kind of like Bermuda grass, uh, for seed, uh, to sell to cattle farmers to put on their pastures and grow cattle feed. But bahia grass isn't ready to make seed most of the time, so the second brother runs cows on the bahia grass when it's not seeding. That's a good one-two punch. And then the third brother will take a different piece of land every year and grow peanuts. That's why the dirt's so good. It's in a multi-year pasture rotation with cows most of the time, and as a result, it's built up a lot of organic matter. Now, people really fixate on how organic matter has nutrients in it. And it does. But that's really not close to the entire picture. What organic matter is really good for is holding water. And all soil needs that, but especially when your base is just beach sand. What was happening with the first two farms is, even though it's Florida and it rains at least every other day, uh, raining on sand is like you're pouring water into a colander. It just runs straight through. So beyond being hungry, these peanut plants are really just dying of thirst. You could actually see a couple yield bumps in the forecast from when there were a few wet days in a row, and the plants were able to switch from drought survival mode into producing seed. But most of the time, they were just trying to stay alive. And then at this third farm, they were just happy, well-adjusted, well-watered plants, and it showed in the yields. And it showed in the farmer's demeanor, too. He wasn't having an existential crisis about the downfall of America's rural communities and the future of food. He was just having a fine, normal day at work. So those are a couple stories that I just want to put out there for some context as we start talking about agriculture and food systems. Does our national and global food system have challenges? Oh, yes, it does. And I also think they're a lot more solvable than a lot of us give them credit for. I feel like the way people talk about farming can be a very fatalistic, the cards are stacked against us kind of outlook. But that doesn't take into account the power of even just one insightful, diligent person who approaches agriculture in a thoughtful and professional way. It doesn't take into account the human side of making food. Now, we talk a lot about how awful things are, but inside all of those faults, all those gaps between how things are and how they could be are huge opportunities. What I believe is that we haven't even seen the beginning of what our land, our people, and our food systems can do. And the only way to get to that potential is to start doing some real talk about the human systems behind the food. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me at Farm to Tabor. Next episode, we'll be talking about farm labor and how U.S. farms are switching from poor, exploited immigrant labor to even more exploited convict labor. It's going to be super. Special thanks to Revolutionary Coworking in Fayetteville, North Carolina for recording space.